Good evening, brothers and sisters and friends. It's a very, very exciting week that we've been having uh, when it comes to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. We're going to listen to a little bit of a man called Nigel Farage, who you may have heard of in a moment, on his, in his last speech to the European Union. He's going to begin by saying, this is the final chapter, the end of the road. And this, I truly believe, brethren and sisters and friends, this is the final chapter. We just turned the page to the final chapter, and we know that Christ could return at any moment. If there's one thing that we should feel from the events that are taking place, and how rapidly things are speeding up, and we see prophecy being fulfilled that we have, we have waited for for so many years, and there's a little handout, I hope, that you have one, and if you don't, make sure that you get one, but um, there's four quotes there on the back. Three are from uh, 150 over years ago, talking about Britain's role in Europe, <clears throat> and the last one from the booklet Gardens of Israel and Arabia, written by our brother Paul Billington in 1990, so quite a, a few years ago, where he wrote, the timing we don't, do not know, but the author of this booklet believes that Bible prophecy requires Britain's ultimate separation from Catholic Europe. On that basis, he has no hesitation in saying that Britain's eventual exit from Europe is a certainty. <clears throat> and it sure didn't seem like it then. And another 14 years on from that, when Tony Blair signed up to the European Treaty, it sure didn't seem like it then. Britain was getting in deeper and deeper, and it seemed impossible to stand up and say that Britain is going to come out of Europe. It's like saying Texas is going to separate from the United States. That's what it was feeling like. And yet here we are about less than 24 hours from when that is officially going to happen and Britain is going to come out of Europe. So let's listen to uh, uh, just a, a shortened uh, bit of that speech of uh, Nigel Farage as they leave the European Parliament just yesterday, I think that was. So this is it, the final chapter, the end of the road. A 47-year political experiment that the British, frankly, have never been very happy with. My mother and father signed up to a common market, not to a political union, not to flags, anthems, presidents, and now you even want your own army. No more financial contributions. No more European Court of Justice. No more common fisheries policy. No more being talked down to. No more being bullied. No more Guy Verhofstadt. I mean, I mean, what's not to like? I know you're going to miss us. I know you want to ban our national flags, but we're going to wave you goodbye. And we'll look forward in the future to working with you as sovereign... If you disobey the rules, you get cut off. Could we please remove the flags? Mr. Farage. Could we remove the flags, please? Could I please ask the choir? I'm really, please sit down, resume your seats, put your flags away, you're leaving, and take them with you if you are leaving now. 
So, uh, but uh, amazing, the spirit of, of Europe. Um, as Nigel Farage made the point that we're not allowed to have our flags, you want to erase our national identity, and when they did get out their flags, they cut them off, silenced. It was really quite incredible just the way that that all happened. And um, so what we want to do now is, is, is go back a little bit. Uh, we've, we've, we have on the handout what, what Christadelphians have taught, that Britain would come out of Europe. We want to look at some of the reasons why Christadelphians believe that. Um, we want to look at the repercussions of Brexit. What's going to happen next as far as, far as Bible prophecy is concerned. And, um, and, it, and we want to also look at briefly a little bit about Russia and, and the peace plan that just came out this week. Like I said, it's an incredible week and so there's a lot to consider. Back in the Old Testament, before Israel was destroyed, the prophet Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He didn't want to preach to them. And so it tells us in Jonah chapter 1 verse 3 that Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa, which is right next to modern, modern day Tel Aviv, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, so maybe he thought he would go and preach the gospel in Tarshish. But it wasn't God's purpose for the gospel to be preached in Tarshish at that time. It was God's purpose for Jonah to go to Nineveh. And we know the story. But it does tell us a bit about Tarshish. It tells us that they were trading, uh, that uh, it was on the west of Israel when Jonah boarded that boat and headed from Tel Aviv across the Mediterranean Sea. And it was far away. We learn that also from Jonah. We learn quite a bit more about Tarshish in the scriptures. From Ezekiel chapter 27 and verse 12, it says that Tarshish was thy merchant by reason of the multitude of all kind of riches with silver, iron, tin, and lead they traded in thy fair. So we learn quite a lot about Tarshish from that little verse. That Tarshish was a trading power that traded with uh, Israel, with Judah in ancient times. Um, and it tells us that they traded in metal, in silver, iron, tin, and lead, which is quite a number of metals and very unique metals in the ancient world. So Tarshish then was a, a merchant power that was trading in precious metals of silver, iron, tin, and lead. Now, it's absolutely astounding because while this whole Brexit process has been going on, actually just at the end of last year, there was some, a study released that made headlines that Cornish tin, so Cornish is from, uh, from England, from uh, Cornwall, Cornish tin found in Israel, just off Haifa, in the Haifa Bay, is hard evidence of the earliest trade links. So this is going back before the time, I think, of Jonah. Well, before the time, if you look at the dating of this, it goes back to the time before Jonah. Um, the Daily Mail, that's the UK Times, the UK Daily Mail says, How Britannia Ruled the Waves in the Bronze Age. 
3,000-year-old tin ingots from Devon and Cornwall found in Israel reveal the island's ancient trade routes dating back to 1,300 years before Christ. Scientists have discovered 3,000-year-old tin in Israel that was made in Cornwall. The Bronze Age samples prove the existence of maritime trade around 1300 BC. Tin and copper were highly prized materials that drove the trade development. So when Jonah got on that boat, he went as far as he could away. He did not care. He did not want Nineveh to respond to God's message. And he went as far as he could go. Uh, away from that. And, and we know now that where that was, that he was going. For a certainty, we knew before, and, but this new evidence just came out at the end of last year, and there's some of those pieces of tin from, uh, from, the Haifa, from Haifa that were made with metal from Cornwall. They analyzed the tin in both places and they can tell um, the source. So, if you, uh, if you can see that map there, you can see... Um, where the tin was uh, found, if you just follow the yellow arrow from the top left, if you follow that arrow to where it was made, uh, to where it was found. It also shows tin deposits through the ancient world, and uh, which are the red dots, and there really are not that many. So um, it was a, a very rare metal at that time. And, uh, and the Phoenicians, we know for certain, were trading with the metal from, uh, from Cornwall at the time of Jonah, at the time of ancient Judah and Israel. <coughs> Referring to uh, previous finds other than this one, um, this history of seafaring, it says the, the finds that they had at that point uh, point to connections from Sardinia to Cilic- uh, Sicily on the one hand and the Atlantic regions on the other conf- confirm an important two-way metal trade stretching from the western Mediterranean through the Straits of Gibraltar and up along the Atlantic coast to Britain. So we've known this for a long time, but we we now have more evidence. This is from another book, The History of England. Uh, The temptation to invade the island lay not only in the pearls, the gold and the tin, for which it seems to have been noted among certain Mediterranean merchants long before the foundation of Rome. Temptation lay also in its fertile soil. So this is a map from that book. Um, which shows mining in Celtic Britain. I don't know if you can you can see the uh, blue circles, but the blue circles show all the mining areas. They show iron mines, lead mines, tin mines, gold mines, copper mines, um, all all over that area of the UK. So we we absolutely know where the the source where you could get all those metals mentioned by Ezekiel. In one place, we know uh, certainly where that was. We have the evidence that they found tin from Cornwall, from the mine shown on this map, um, in Haifa Bay in Israel from the time that it is. So we, we, we're very certain about this. And of course now we see these prophecies um, coming to, to pass right before our eyes. We learn more about um, Tarshish in uh, Ezekiel chapter 38 that we just read together. Um, we learn quite a bit more about Tarshish there in that passage. We, uh, let's just read it through. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Art thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to take a great spoil? So here we, we see that Tarshish is associated 
um, with other, here it calls them young lions, other nations that are, uh, are grown up. We, we would think from Tarshish if we count that to be Britain, which we certainly see the evidence for. So uh, the merchants of Tarshish, we see that they're merchant powers. So they're merchant of powers. There's an alliance of nations, merchant powers, an alliance of nations, and associated with Sheba and Dedan, which is the Gulf states today. So in that chapter, we can clearly see a grouping of nations that are merchant powers that... um, that are associated with Sheba and Dedan, and that there's a group of those powers. And in this prophecy that we're going to talk a little bit more about together, um, this is one grouping of nations within that um, prophecy. Also from Isaiah chapter 60, there's an important association here between two words, two ideas that we want to to pick up on. So, <clears throat> it says there in Isaiah 60 verse 9, this is from the Jewish Publication Society translation, Behold, the coastlands await me with ships of Tarshish in the lead to bring your sons from afar and their silver and gold as well. So here we, sh- we see the coastlands, the isles, the islands associated with Tarshish. So Tarshish and the, and the coastlands go together. Okay, so, uh, and that's a particular word, and I've used the, the whole meaning of it there. Coastlands, islands, or isles. In the King James it says isles. So notice the association between Tarshish and those coastlands. What we want to do is now look at another verse in Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles. That's the isles, the coastlands, the islands afar off from Israel. And say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Now we want to think about this verse here for a minute. Because it's saying that a message is going to be preached to the isles, the islands afar off from Israel. And that message is to be preached while Israel is scattered. He that scattered Israel, past tense, will gather him. So while they are scattered, but before they are regathered. So while the Jewish people are scattered outside of the land of Israel, a message is going to be preached to those isles afar off. And we saw from that previous verse how the the coastlands or the isles are associated with Tarshish. So we could say that those isles afar off where this message is to be preached is is, uh, Tarshish and those associated with that nation. And they are to hear the word of the Lord and the message is that Israel, the Jews that are scattered amongst you, are going to be regathered. Now, if we go back a little bit in history, and we're not going to spend um, too much time doing this, but if we go back in history to the time of the Reformation when the English Bible, the King James Version, that we many of us have and are familiar with, that that Bible went out in, into all the world with the help of the printing press, 
with the help of what was then the, the beginnings and the British Empire that came. And not only that, many of those people that obtained the Bible read it and they read the message in the prophets of the return of the Jews. And they wrote books about it. So this one here is by a man called Robert Mason. It's published in 1646. And the message is, He that scattered Israel will gather him. And it went out to the isles afar off. And there are many such books like this. So this book, Israel's Redemption, Redeemed, or the Jews' General and Miraculous Conversion to the Faith of the Gospel and Return to Their Own Land and Her Savior's Reign Upon Earth, clearly proved out of many plain prophecies in the Old and New Testaments and so forth. This is another uh, man, and this is in America, a man called Elhanan Winchester, and he wrote in 1800, Nothing need to be more plainly declared than this, that the Jews shall certainly return and possess their own land again, notwithstanding their long captivity and utter dispersion. He that scattered Israel will gather him. And that message went out, and many, you can find many, many of these books that where, where people wrote that the Jews had to return. Uh, one of these uh, people uh, was John Thomas, who really started the, the Christadelphians, as we, we many of most of us know, I think, here tonight. Wrote a book called Elpis Israel, The Hope of Israel, and he actually wrote about Britain as well in that book. And he said, I know not whether the men who at present contrive the foreign policy of Britain, he's writing in 1848, so over 170 years ago, whether the... Those who uh, contrived the foreign policy of Britain entertained the idea of assuming the sovereignty of the Holy Land and of promoting its colonization by the Jews. Their present intentions, however, are of no importance one way or the other because they will be compelled by events soon to happen to do what, under existing circumstances, heaven and earth combined could not move them to attempt. And the British did that. We're not going to spend the time this evening, we've done it many times before, to look at the, the Balfour Declaration, the events in World War I, how the British took the Holy Land, how they had the British mandate, and how the Jews started to go back. Um, that all came to pass. And so with the aid of the, the British merchant ships that traveled throughout the world, that took the, the things that were now being able to be printed and mass-produced, and books, the Bible, books about prophecy, and people who traveled and spoke about these things throughout the English-speaking world, um, it, it, that message went out. That message that he that scattered Israel would gather him to Tarshish and those nations associated with her. This is a, a boat, a steamship, from the time of Robert Roberts. Actually, Robert Roberts traveled on the steamship from, uh, from Great Britain to Australia on his second voyage. And uh, you can see the, the map of the voyage there. And he traveled to Australia, to New Zealand. He traveled through uh, America and everywhere he went. He did lectures to hundreds, sometimes thousands of people and he spoke about Bible prophecy. Here's one of those advertisements. And he spoke that message, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. So that, that was a fulfillment of prophecy and that message went out into all the earth and it helps us to understand who Tarshish was because that message 
went primarily to those nations at that time. So a summary of Tarshish that we've looked at so far. Tarshish traded in silver, iron, tin, and lead in the ancient world. And we've seen how those metals came from from Tarshish, from uh, the United Kingdom as we know it today. uh, Tarshish consisted of coastlands or islands far west from the land of Israel. And we looked at those passages, Jonah chapter 1 verse 3, Jeremiah and Isaiah. It was a merchant trading power with other, others, other nations associated with her, including Sheba and Dedan. And we looked at Ezekiel, uh, two places in Ezekiel chapter 27 and 38. And they would have the message of the return of the Jews preached to them. And obviously that would necessarily have to happen before the Jews returned. So all those things... We, we learn about Tarshish from our Bibles and the identification of Tarshish is absolutely certain. There is, there is no chance um, that you will find any other nation, group of nations, that fits that criteria. And that's why Christadelphians were so confident that Britain would come out of Europe and why they wrote the things that they did and that you have on, on the handout. Okay, moving on then, we see that um, there's two powers in relation to Israel in the latter days in Bible prophecy. And there are three prophecies here that we can uh, consider. And tonight we don't have a a lot of time to, to go through them all in detail. We've read Ezekiel 38 together. That's the first one. The second one is Daniel chapter 11 where we read about a king of the north and a king of the south. And the last one is Zechariah chapter 6 where we read about two mountains of brass. Let's just take a moment then and uh, turn to Ezekiel chapter 38. So what we find in the latter days when we look at these prophecies is that Israel has a group of nations to the north of her that are hostile and another group of nations situated, um, as it were, to the south of her. And that's from Israel's perspective. So these prophecies are all given from Israel's perspective, not from ours. So if you want to get the sense of it, you've kind of got to put yourself mentally in the land of Israel and look north, look south, and... uh, and then you can, uh, you can see how the prophet is visualizing that. So in Ezekiel chapter 38, we first read about a confederacy that is in the north, a confederacy of nations. And it tells us about that in the beginning of the chapter. The word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face against Gog. Now, as you go through this chapter, there are many ways that you can see that it is a latter-day prophecy. It applies to the time of the return of Christ. It tells us in verse 9 that it's in the latter years. It specifically describes how the land has been desolate for generations, many, many generations, but now the Jews have returned. The land that was once desolate is now inhabited. It is also situated in the book of Ezekiel in a section of prophecies of restoration. So if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 37, you've got this famous prophecy of the dry bones. And it's the Son of Man who Ezekiel represents in the vision. 
He represents the Son of Man and acts in that capacity. So in chapter 37, he says unto me in verse 3, Son of Man, can these bones live? And, And Ezekiel, as the Son of Man, prophesies to the bones. And he's instrumental in that work of bringing Israel back to life again. In the second section of that chapter that starts at verse um, 15, the prophecy of the two sticks, again, Ezekiel as the son of man, verse 15, the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take these two sticks. So he is then instrumental in bringing together Israel into one nation, the stick of Judah and the stick of Israel. And he works in that role. When we come to chapter 38, The word of the Lord came unto me saying, Son of man, set thy face against Go. So what we have in Ezekiel chapter 38 is a contest between the Son of man and who Ezekiel represents, which is, I believe, is the Lord Jesus Christ and those with him, and Gog. That's the contest of Ezekiel 38. It's a contest between the Son of man and between Gog. And Gog comes down into a trap and is utterly destroyed. That is the point of the chapter. Ezekiel says that he comes to take a spoil and to take a prey and to set his hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited. He comes to take a spoil and to take a prey. And if you um, just go over to Ezekiel chapter 39 and verse 10... Speaking of the, of the destruction of this, of this confederacy of Gog, it says, So that they shall take no wood out of the field, nor, neither cut down any out of the forest, for they shall burn the weapons with fire, the weapons of Gog, and they shall spoil those that spoiled them, and rob those that robbed them, saith the Lord God. So Gog comes down to, um, to spoil Israel, to, to make them into a spoil and a prey, But the whole thing is flipped around, it tells us, and Gog becomes a spoil and a prey. The exact same two words. And this is a fascinating study because, if you uh, will just um, let me sidetrack slightly for a moment, you may remember um, that Isaiah and his two sons, Isaiah's name is very close to the Lord Jesus Christ, the same meaning, and his two sons, he has two sons. One is called Shir Jashub, Shar Yashuv, a remnant shall return. His second son is the one that we, we use sometimes as a joke, right? Maybe you should call your boy Meher Shalhal Hashbaz. Right? It's probably the longest name in the Bible. Okay? It means swift or quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. So in Isaiah, whose name is the, 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 virtually the same as the Lord Jesus Christ, and his two sons represent Israel. It says they are for signs and wonders in Israel. And so Isaiah, the Savior, his sons, a remnant shall return, the Jews will return, and his other son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, they will be quick to plunder and swift to the spoil. And that, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, is like the Son of Man in Ezekiel 38. And he plunders Gog, and it's the same two words for plunder and spoil in all in those places. In the name, Meher Shalhal Hashbaz, and in Ezekiel 38, and in Ezekiel 39 in the verse that we looked at. That is a little aside. It's uh, very interesting. 
I just I just discovered that last night, so I had to share that. Um, but um, so that's the uh, Ezekiel chapter 38. So Gog and his hosts come down onto onto the land of Israel. It says in uh, in the King James that uh, it's the chief prince. Uh, the better translation of that is, as uh, a number of other translations do, and to translate that as a proper name, so instead of, um, let me find Ezekiel 38 again, instead of chief prince, it is prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And several translations do that. Uh, the New King James, Young's Literal, Greens, um, and others. And if you look up the, what the lexographer Jesenius says, um, about that in Ezekiel chapter 38, he comments on that uh, on that very word in his in his dictionary, and he says about Rosh that it is of a northern nation mentioned with Tubal and Meshach, undoubtedly the Russians, and he explains it um, some more. I'm not going to uh, take a lot of time to go through this, but we do believe here that Rosh uh, refers to Russia in Ezekiel chapter 38. It says that they are from the north in verse 6, and that is repeated in uh, chapter 39 as well, and, um, and verse 3, or verse 2, is it? Verse 2, I will cause thee to come up from the north parts. And uh, I think it might be the RV says the uttermost parts of the north, but if you look that up again in Jesenius, it will say the most remote regions is the meaning of that word. So this power is to come from the most remote regions of the north. And if you go north from Israel today, you're going to um, be in Syria almost right away, where Russia is absolutely embedded today. And then there's Turkey, and then after that it's only one option. And, uh, and so when it says about a nation and a grouping of nations north of Israel... Uh, we, we are very certain that that refers to Russia from um, Jesenius. There's many other references that we, could, uh, that we could turn to. So in Ezekiel 38, we have two powers related to Israel in the last days that are referred to. We have this, um, this grouping of nations led by this one Gog. And then we have those other ones that we referred to, the Tarshish powers that we've been speaking of in verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish. So those Gulf states that are associated today with America and with, uh, with Great Britain, uh, the merchant powers of today, and, um, and that, that grouping of nations. So there's those two groupings of nations in Ezekiel 38, uh, but it, there's another one there that we've mentioned, and that's the Son of Man. And he's the one who destroys Gog in the chapter. It's not, um, it's not Tarshish. Tarshish is not always so uh, perfect to the Jewish people either. We know that they haven't been. And actually in this chapter they're worried about the spoil and the prey, about the material goods, but they say nothing to Gog about the people. Um, so that tells us something uh, about uh, the, the, the Tarshish needs to modify their thinking in that chapter. What we're going to do now then is just turn over to Daniel chapter 11. And I apologize that we are going through these quickly, but um, we just have to do that. Uh, but we just want to see these three, um, three prophecies of the latter days. 
So Daniel chapter 11, the whole chapter is this contest between the king of the north and the king of the south. And both these powers in Daniel chapter 11 came from the Greek empire. And it's very, very clear in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11 that that is, that that is the case. And the Greeks were associated with bronze, not just in the armor that they wore, but also prophetically, because in another prophecy, Nebuchadnezzar's image, that we'll refer to a little bit later, um, that is the metal that depicts the Greeks. So you've got this king of the north and the king of the south, which were both remnants of Alexander the Great's empire, that were contending back and forth, and Israel is stuck in the middle. And that's how you end up with the story of the Maccabees who, who objected to the Greek rule of the time. That's the story of Daniel chapter 11. Of the end of Daniel chapter 11, it has a short section about the time of the end. And this is the time of the return of Christ. And it's absolutely plain to see that because all you have to do is just read the, few, the couple of beginning verses of chapter 12 and you will clearly see the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead at the beginning of Daniel chapter 12. And it says in verse 40 of chapter 11, at the time of the end, and at the beginning of chapter 12 it says, and at that time. So same time. Okay. So those last few verses then of Daniel chapter 11 are about the time of the end when Christ returns, when the Jewish people are delivered, and when the resurrection takes place as it tells us in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. So it says, At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. Now that's the same event as Ezekiel chapter 38 of Gog coming down. It gives us more information um, about it. And you can read through all that until he verse, uh, the last verse, for, verse 45 he comes into the land of Israel, plants his tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. So he, he comes right to Jerusalem, yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Which is the same thing as the stone smiting the image. It's the same thing as the Son of Man destroying him as in Ezekiel chapter 38. So that's your king of the north and king of the south. I just want to notice though, because, um, just to clarify this word in verse 40. Because it says there, at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. And the word push there is not, doesn't have the, the full meaning for us in, um, in English, in, in the translation. It sounds like um, Johnny goes over and pushes Freddy, and Freddy gets mad and takes him out. Right? That's what it sounds like. But that's not, uh, what it, that's not what the word means. It's reflexive. It's a special type of verb in the Hebrew language. And it's reflexive. Um, so if I was to use that, um, that verb in another sense, if I was to walk, that would be the regular verb. If I was to use the special form, it would be to walk to and fro. And there's many other ways that uh, you could find that, that verb used. So it's a reflexive verb. And in this case then, it does not mean just to push. It means to, as Jesenia says, to wage war with anyone. Green's literal translation says, shall engage in butting. Because how this, this word um, would usually be used is two animals that are butting horns and fighting each other. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. 
and the Jewish Publication Society translates it, will lock horns with him. And that's important because it tells us a characteristic of the time of the end where these two powers are back and forth, back and forth, contending with each other during the period of the time of the end. Now lastly then we want to turn to Zechariah chapter 6. Now we have to understand that Zechariah is written after the exile. So when Zechariah writes his prophecy, everybody has in their hands or can, can hear it being read to them, Ezekiel chapter 38, and they can also read Daniel chapter 11. They have both those prophecies when Zechariah chapter 6 is given. So, in Daniel, uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 6, it says, I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of brass. As soon as I say to somebody who's very familiar with Daniel chapter 11 at that time that there's going to be two mountains of brass relative to the, to the land of Israel and everybody knows about the king of the north and the king of the south and that they're both Greek and that they all have read about Daniel's image and they know that the, uh, the Greek power is brass or bronze, they're going to say this is the king of the north and the king of the south at the time of the end. It's very clear. And uh, we know from uh, other prophecies, Daniel chapter 2 is one, this is another one, Jeremiah chapter 51, where we see that a mountain in Bible prophecy um, symbolizes a kingdom. So people would be familiar with that um, symbology from Jeremiah chapter 51, they would have that. And also from Daniel chapter 2, where the stone smites the image and becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. That's the kingdom of God. So a mountain is a kingdom. So you get two mountains of brass. One to the north and one to the south of Israel. That's what it will be like in the time of the end. And that's exactly the situation that we see today. And we're going to see some more of this. We all, we all know this is true. Uh, above Israel is the, is the European Union and Russia, who are hostile to Israel, who, who support the Palestinian cause, who want a Palestinian state in the heart of Israel, um, and very much support the Palestinians. And we're not going to um, spend time looking at that um, too much um, tonight. Um, but then to the south of Israel, there is the Gulf states. There is Great Britain with all its bases in the Middle East, and America supporting those Gulf states, and Saudi Arabia and doing a lot of trade and business with them. And we see that back and forth, back and forth. And one of the amazing things that we've seen in Bible prophecy over the last few years is how divided the Arab world has become. And it's, it's absolutely incredible. And we're going to see some news pieces about that as we go on tonight. Um, Daniel chapter 2, what we need to notice with Daniel chapter 2 is that it is a prophecy of what shall be in the latter days, chapter 2, verse 28. We understand from verse 35 that the image is broken to pieces together, so it will stand together. If it's broken to pieces together, it will stand together. And we understand from verses 44 and 45 that the stone that breaks the image 
is the kingdom of God. It's the same as those chariots that come out between the two mountains of brass. It's the same as the Son of Man who sets his face against Gog. Well, it tells us that when this image stands up, this image empire stands up, it tells us the form thereof was terrible. It was formidable. It was fearful. And we saw how Babylon reacted and treated Daniel and his friends. And they threw Daniel's friends in a furnace of fire. And we've seen how the Roman Empire treated um, Christians. We saw how the Holy Roman Empire treated Christians and Jews. We saw the Inquisition. And you can go down through history and look at the character of that system through all that time. And it says when that image stands up, it's going to be a terrible thing. It's going to be a formidable thing. And uh, I just want you to listen now to a few more uh, words from uh, Nigel Farage just before that, um, in a press conference, just before they, they had that final session at the European Union. But I think the real point about this week is that at 11 o'clock UK time, on the 31st of January, 2020, we leave the European Union and we pass the point of no return. That is the significance of this week. And in terms of what it means for us constitutionally, what it means for us in terms of our place in the world, it's probably the most important thing since Henry VIII took us out of the Church of Rome. He took us out of the Church of Rome and we are leaving the Treaty of Rome. There is no going back from this. That's why it's such a significant moment. That's why we're going to celebrate this in Parliament Square uh, and we'll be there on Friday evening. We hope that the English weather uh, it doesn't disappoint us too much. He says we were coming out of the Treaty of Rome. And the Treaty of Rome was signed in 1957 and it is what created the European Union. And that's the, uh, the video of that event taking place. We're not going to watch it all. It's kind of boring actually just signing a, some guys signing papers. But it was very significant. Um, and Britain joined on to that later. And we already referred to this in 2004, again, at the Vatican, in Rome. Tony Blair signed the European Treaty and signed Britain into that treaty. And they were locked into that. And, and uh, agreements signed at the Vatican haven't always been, have never been so good. Um, just going back to 1933, the Vatican and Nazi Germany signed the Concordat. And you can go back and look at the history of that. It was not a good thing. As a matter of fact, it could be summarized this way. The Concordat effectively removed Vatican opposition to the Nazis in exchange for restored control over religious affairs. And this has been very carefully sort of scrubbed from history. But if you go back, you can find out um, that this was the case. Here is the uh, Vatican ambassador to Germany meeting with uh, Hitler, and I think this picture is from uh, in the 19, maybe 1939-40, somewhere in there. There's another picture of Hitler warmly greeting a Catholic cardinal. You can find tons of information on this. It's no secret uh, whatsoever. That's the character of Europe. That's the character it's had when it's joined with the papacy, with the Vatican. And so that image that we will now see stand up, that image is going to stand up, that image empire. If Christ doesn't return soon, we will witness that happen. And Daniel chapter 2 verse 31, as we referred to, says that the form thereof was terrible.
was the group shot. Um, I don't think we have time to watch it, but uh, we can start. But the group shot is amazing, if you, you've seen the pictures of this, and uh, how the, 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 the Pope is the center of all those men, of all the leaders of those important countries, and, and he is in the center of the picture. It is absolutely unbelievable, but it shows you um, who is behind that. So one of the big threats of Brexit, of course, is that the European Union would fall apart. And so the Pope is already pleading for European unity and, uh, and warning against fear mongers. The, uh, <clears throat> the president of France, uh, Macron, in The Economist, he said that Europe is on the edge of a precipice and they're terrified that Europe is going to fall apart, that this whole project that they've been working on since 1957 is going to collapse. And so it has given them every reason to, to move ahead with Europe, with closer integration, as fast as they can. Of course, Britain still had its own currency. All the other nations do not. They are much more trapped than Britain was. Britain managed to get out by the skin of its teeth. We hope it continues to be able to get out. Uh, meanwhile, Russia is growing. The power of Russia is growing, not just in Europe, in, in the fact that they supply all the gas and resources to Europe, but also in the Middle East. And this headline says, A turbulent decade sees Moscow's star shine brightly in the Middle East. The last ten years have transformed Russia in the Middle East. Just this last week, um, leaders from all over the world went to, to Jerusalem for... Um, Holocaust Remembrance. And this headline says, Among dozens of world leaders in Jerusalem, Putin proves the dominant presence. That Vladimir Putin is the region's new superstar at center stage in Israel and pulling strings in Lebanon, Syria, Iran, and quite possibly Gaza too, was confirmed at Yad Vashem on Thursday. Terrible that that would be the thing that you would notice at Yad Vashem. But Putin is the new power in the Middle East, the superstar in the Middle East. And it's exactly what we re- we've been waiting for. It's Ezekiel 38. We see it um, happening before our eyes. So the results of Brexit. And this is absolutely amazing. What, what's going to happen? This is, this is how things are now going to go. Because Britain was the, was the guy pulling on the handbrake in the European unity car all the time and getting everybody mad because they didn't want a European army. They didn't want a common currency. They didn't want to give up their sovereignty. 
whereas everybody else did that. Britain is now out of the car. They've taken their flags and gone. And now there's nobody to pull the handbrake. As a matter of fact, everybody else is worried that the unity, that the European Union is going to fall apart. And so now Macron wants to step on the gas. The Pope wants to step on the gas pedal and they want to move the project forward. And so in Revelation 17 verse 13 it says that they will have one mind and they will give their power and strength to the beast. That is the mindset in the European Union car. And so what we're going to see, I believe now, is an acceleration of the European project. But Europe has a problem, and that is Russia. And NATO isn't what it used to be. And they have to deal with Russia. And they've said they want to bring Russia into this. They want to deal with Russia. We're going to see... We're going to see Britain... Or we're going to see Europe working with Russia. And they're going to, we believe, bring Russia into that. That Russia will dominate it, just like Ezekiel 38 says. I believe that this, that Brexit is a great deliverance for Bible believers in the United Kingdom. Because it says when this image stands up, the form thereof is terrible. And we know what this system's character is down through the centuries. And we, we, we know many Christadelphians in, in England. And if this image is to stand up and Britain were subjected, I believe those people would be persecuted. And so I believe that it is a deliverance for those believers in the UK. Brexit is going to push the UK to its traditional Commonwealth nations for trade, including Sheba and Dedan, because they're going to now be at loggerheads through with Europe. Europe has to prove that Britain's a loser and that you should never leave the European Union. And ideology is more important to Europe than trade. Britain sees it the opposite. Britain only sees trade. They don't see the ideology. So there's going to be a clash, continuing clash, between Europe and the UK. And all this would prepare a future work for Tarshish. This is the coin that is released, uh, I believe, tomorrow in England. Peace, prosperity, and friendship with all nations. That is the spirit of ancient Tyre um, on this coin. And that is the spirit of, of Britain now that they are trying to embrace. It is really amazing. So they are very much talking about trade deals with other people to strengthen their hand in the negotiations with, of trade, future trade with Europe. So, work day and night to secure a trade deal to strengthen the hand against the EU, says Donald Trump's ambassador. So, Britain is going to be working with the United States with the trade deal. At the same time, they're working with Europe. They're not going to be putting all their eggs in one basket. At the same time, just going back a, a few months, but the economists noted this, and it's so much more so today. That there's a collision course, America, Iran, and the threat of war. It's been on the brink of war, as we know, the last few weeks. And again, in Ezekiel 38, we read about Iran. It's, again, incredible. We don't have a lot of time to talk about this. I wish we, we had more time. But the peace plan that just came out this week, I just read the title of it, and, uh, <laughs> and it was Ezekiel 38. The Peace to Prosperity Plan. That's Ezekiel 38. Read through it. They will be living in peace and prosperity. I'm not saying that this plan is what will do it. But that is the direction that things are going in. From peace to prosperity. 
Um, if you've looked at the map, the problem with, the, with this plan is it's a plan of walls, bars, and gates, which is not Ezekiel 38. So um, it doesn't seem to fit. But nevertheless, this is the trend. And that is what Ezekiel 38 um, requires. Of course, the reaction to this by Iran, Iran condemns the Trump peace plan as treason of the century. That is the one side of the equation. And of course, Abbas, the leader of the Palestinians, he says, we say no a thousand times, no, no, and no, and no, and no. He doesn't like it either. Okay? But Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, UAE, they welcome the Trump peace plan. That is incredible that those Arab nations would even have anything good to say about it. That is such an amazing change that has taken place in the attitude of those nations. And Saudi Arabia has been warming up to, to trade and relations with Israel. It is really, really incredible. Meanwhile, of course, there's a lot of talk about Israel going ahead and annexing settlements and, and annexing more parts of the mountains of Israel. Again, read Ezekiel 38. That is Ezekiel 38. There is so much. We see Ezekiel 38 just coming, everything coming together, all the pieces of it, coming together right before our eyes. It seemed impossible 10, 15 years ago during the Intifada um, when there were suicide bombings. It seemed impossible that Israel would ever be able to hold on to those settlements. It is so incredible where we are today. And back in 1981... Brother Graham Pierce wrote in the Milestones, in light of Ezekiel 38, verse 12, that the people dwell in the midst, the navel of the land, one hardly expects Israel to give up her settlements in the West Bank. Meanwhile, Israel's new defense minister, who's a national religious Zionist, is crashing, uh, clashing with the European Union over, over building in the, uh, in, the, in the settlements in the West Bank. There's a mighty clash coming between the king of the north between Israel and Ezekiel 38 says between the son of man over the Jews that dwell in the midst of the land. And that's what we've been expecting and we see everything coming together as we expected it. There's a, a future for Tarshish that we could look at as well. Uh, um, we don't have time to do that. We, we've run out of time. But uh, there is a future work for Tarshish. And uh, part of that work is bringing back the remaining Jews out of the world, out of in the that aren't in the land of Israel. This is incredible. If you look at this chart, there's um, 6.4 million uh, Jews in Israel, 5.3 to 7 million Jews in the United States. After that, it drops right off. Most of the Jews left outside of the land of Israel are in the West. And Tarshish has a job for bringing those Jews back. So in Isaiah 60 verse 9 it says, Behold, the coastlands await me, the ships of Tarshish in the lead, to bring your sons from afar and their silver and their gold with them. I don't know if Jews have ever come back to the land of Israel with their silver and their gold with them. They always they say a Jew's favorite instrument is the violin because it's the easiest one to run away with, right? So that's pretty much the only thing they get to take. The Jews that came back from Arab lands came with nothing. The Jews that came back from the Holocaust came with nothing. But the Jews will come back from the, from the West with their silver and their gold with them. I want to finish by reading a few verses from Matthew chapter 25. 
Because this isn't, this isn't for us to just sit here and say, wow, this is amazing, prophecies being fulfilled, the Bible is true. It's not just for that. We began by saying that this is the last chapter. And I've felt this last week, as these events have happened, that I know, I know, this is it. That Christ could return at any time. Let's just read in uh, Matthew chapter 25. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to us. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. That is what we are going to hear, we believe. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. And we have to put ourselves in that situation. We have to put ourselves in the situation when that cry comes out. We know. I know. I can, I can think about that. I know what I'm going to, I would think. That I know what I'm not going to care about. It'll just be like, I remember when, my, when uh, Josh got diagnosed with leukemia. I didn't care how much money I had in the bank. I didn't care about my house. I didn't care about my car. I didn't care about anything except that one thing. And that's what it's going to be like when Christ comes back. We all know it. All the things that you thought were important are suddenly not going to matter one bit. And we need to think about that. Because Christ is telling us there's five wise who had put oil in their lamps and there's those that did not. Now is the time to make those changes. There's an oak in Shechem where you can go and dump your idols. And that's what we need to do. Go and dump the trash out of our lives because Christ is coming back. And this is showing us. We know it. We can see everything coming together and it's happening fast. We don't know how long it will be exactly. But we know it's coming. If all this has happened, what is left to happen? Everything is in place, brothers and sisters. We are so close. We know it. We know it's true. You can watch, remember uh, Jeremy Gimple, we, we saw that, right? He's sitting there in Israel going, we are so close to the Messiah. And we think we, we know we have the truth, right? We know we have the truth. Do we see that? Do we see the reality of it? Or are we getting caught up in the, in the garbage and distractions and computers and smartphones and things that burn our time and our energy and our minds and turn us away from the truth because this age is such a distraction? We have to think about this. We know. We know what we'll be thinking when that cry is made. Behold, the bridegroom cometh because it's going to happen. Are we going to be thinking, I wish I had gone and talked to that brother? That I made amends? That I, that I did this? That I got rid of this out of my life? Because the things that we look at, you want to sell the kingdom of God for that? For watching something? Doing something? Wasting time on YouTube? You want to sell the kingdom of God for that? None of it is worth it, and yet we get so caught up in it. 
And if there's anything tonight that we have to remember is to think that that cry is coming, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. What will you be thinking then? I know what I'll be thinking. And I have to think about that carefully. And all of us do. Because these things show us how short a time we have. Everything, you know, so many classes we've had. Brethren, prophecy days, they've said this is, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. We track it all. It's all happening. It's happening right before our eyes. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And we've got to really think about it. Because we're not going to have so many opportunities to go and dump the stuff at the oak in Shechem. As, as Jacob's family did. So let's get our families together. Let's dump the garbage and let's turn our sights to the kingdom of God and get our lives in order and fix the things that need to be fixed while we still have time to do so. Because these are exciting times, but they are sobering times. And we need to really take notice of it. And I'm sorry for going a few minutes over time, but it's worth it to think about this. It is worth it to think about this now and not when that cry is made. Because it's going to come, and we know it's going to come. And we know it's going to come soon. Alright? Thank you.